This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of this family's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, sexual assault, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. September 20th, 1867. A young boy, James Brown, shivered inside his family's barn in DeWitt County, Texas. He watched through the wooden slats as his pa, Neil, argued with a stranger in the yard. From what he could gather, pa accused the stranger of stealing the horse from the family farm. But James couldn't hear exactly what was going on. The rain muffled everything. And he didn't dare try and move closer. Pa had told him to stay put until the stranger left. Behind James, his mother tugged at him, trying to keep him from watching. The stranger, seated on a horse, had an ugly, hateful face. He spat in Neil's direction. This made Neil furious and he charged forward, attempting to pull the stranger down from his mount. But the stranger just kicked him, sending him flying into the mud. James cringed at the sight of his father being treated so callously. He had never seen his paw this angry before. Mustering what dignity he had left, Neil rose to his feet, wiping the mud from his pants. James continued to watch from the barn as Neil's lips curled into a snarl, and he spat out some fresh, hateful comment in the stranger's direction. Then, things moved so fast that it felt like a dream. The stranger yanked his six-gun from his holster, shooting Neil right between the eyes. Inside the barn, James's mother pulled him from his vantage point, holding him to her breast. She cradled him, whispering, We'll kill them all. Every member of the Taylor gang. Hi. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. 
But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? Not all crimes of passion are romantic in nature. Sometimes they are born of passionate hatred, such as the case with the Sutton Taylor feud of Texas, an onslaught of violence between two factions that lasted from 1867 to 1876. As the Taylor cattle rustling clan grew in power, they exhibited an irrational disdain for the new union government and its recently freed black citizens. This would drive them to attack law enforcement led by Deputy Sheriff Bill Sutton and spark a war that would leave many dead on both sides. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Throughout the 1860s, the Taylor gang slowly grew to dominate the cattle business in Southern Texas. They did not come by the success, honestly. This was a vast land in which families lived 30 miles apart. But the cattle numbered in the thousands, and so it was difficult for ranchers to keep track of their livestock or beeves. Men like the Taylor Gang took advantage of this, rebranding other families' cattle and folding them into their own herd. Their patriarch, Creed Taylor, got rich off of this practice. His many sons and nephews acted as an extension of his will, carrying out the thefts and driving the cattle north to be sold in Kansas. If any civilians complained or attempted to stop them from taking what they wanted, the boys made sure they didn't live to see the sunrise. As a reward, Creed promised them legal protection. This meant that family members with more psychotic tendencies went unchecked. Family lawyer and state senator Bolivar Pridgen always made sure that if they were arrested, they didn't stay in jail long. The gang had hundreds of members, but there were four that stood out. To start, there was Creed's nephew, Buck Taylor. Buck was a notorious outlaw wanted in multiple counties for cattle theft and murder. His hatred for the black freedmen knew no bounds. At 27 years old, he had already killed many. Perhaps his most despicable pastime was terrorizing the local black school, threatening the teacher with death if he educated black students. In April 1867, Buck rode onto the property of a black sharecropper, a poor farmer who was already being exploited by white landowners. He threatened the man, and when he tried to run, Buck rode him down and repeatedly shot him in the head until all that was left was mush. Some in the community actually demanded justice for the crime. Creed simply summoned family lawyer Bolivar Pridgen, who got Buck off on a self-defense plea. Next, there was Henry Kelly, Creed's nephew by marriage. According to the research of historian James M. Smallwood, 
Henry had a penchant for terrorizing the Freedmen's Bureau of Lavaca County. The Freedmen's Bureau was a nationwide institution put in place to look after the civil rights of the recently emancipated Black population. In January 1867, Henry tried to stab a Black soldier to death in a town called Hallettsville. When the soldier escaped to the offices of the Freedmen's Bureau, Henry and his men surrounded the building and attempted to rape a young Black girl in plain sight of those within, trying to flush them out with horror. The rape of Black women was used as a tool of terrorism before and after the Civil War. Racial and sexual violence historian Danielle McGuire wrote that this was used to uphold white patriarchal power, but was also deployed as a justification for lynching Black men who challenged the Southern status quo. In essence, if a Black man had consensual sex with a white woman, it was rape. But if a white man raped a Black woman, he was simply exercising his right as a member of the quote-unquote dominant race. As Henry flaunted this diabolical double standard in front of the Freedmen's Bureau, he likely hoped that it would demoralize those within and drive them out into the street. Thankfully, the girl's mother was able to rescue her. Neither Buck nor Henry were Creed Taylor's direct descendants, however. That dubious honor belonged to Hayes and Doughboy Taylor, Creed's 30-something sons. Hayes was the brains of the Taylor gang operations, if one would dare to bestow one of the Taylors with such an honor. Doughboy was more of an idiot tagalong. A Houston Daily Telegraph article from 1866 detailed one of Hayes' earliest crimes. Hayes was drinking at a saloon in South Texas, relaxing after a long cattle drive. His brother and other family friends were present. The piano music could barely be heard over the ruckus they were making. As Hayes clapped his brother on the back and forced him to down another shot, his attention was drawn up to the bar, where he was infuriated to see two black Union soldiers ordering whiskey. Hayes got up from his chair, stumbling over to the bar. With the soldier's back still turned to him, he growled, Stand aside. They shook their heads, refusing to leave. They had as much right to be here as anyone. Hearing this sent Hayes into an uncontrollable rage. He had been raised his whole life to view black people as inferior. The idea that two people of color could be made soldiers and have authority over him already made him angry. But that was just an abstract until now. In this situation, real black people were refusing to obey him and it drove him wild. Leeds Beckett University psychology lecturer Steve Taylor wrote that racism is born out of feelings of inadequacy. His studies show that racism allows individuals to gain a sense of security or belonging as a way of protecting oneself against the threat of mortality. Growing up on the frontier, Hayes was constantly reminded of his own mortality, and he felt little security or belonging in his father's dog-eat-dog -dog organization. Though he had been in charge of operations for nearly a decade at this point, his father's callous attitude didn't make him feel loved or valued. And indeed, Creed continued to produce heirs well into his old age, as if he saw children as just one more employee to add to his business. 
the authority that these black soldiers in the bar represented caused all of these anxieties to surge forth inside of Hayes. Needless to say, he drew his gun, firing on both soldiers. He killed one and seriously wounded the other. His gang hopped to their feet, drawing their own guns on the surrounding bar patrons, protecting their leader from retribution. They walked out into the street, mounting their horses and riding off into the plains. Once back at the ranch, Creed Taylor berated his full son. He had murdered a Union soldier in plain sight. They sat at the ranch house, contemplating their options. Hayes couldn't stay here. It would be the first place the law hunted for him. Yes, they could try to just get him acquitted by a jury, but all it would take was one pro-Union witness to send Hayes to the gallows. No, he needed to escape to somewhere the law couldn't follow. Creed sent Hayes to Mexico. Even that plan failed to stymie Hayes' foolish streak. He didn't know anyone in Mexico. He didn't know how to get around. He didn't even speak the language. And he hated Mexican people as much as he hated black people. Bored and missing his friends, he crossed back over the border within a few weeks. The two Taylor brothers, their cousin Buck and their cousin-in-law Henry, were but a few of the vicious members of the Taylor gang. The criminal organization numbered in the hundreds, and its members were responsible for hundreds if not thousands of deaths across the state of Texas of both black and white citizens. Though the murders are actionable by today's law enforcement standards, the largely racist and rebel-sympathizing government of the state turned a blind eye. But eventually, Hayes went too far, even by 1860 standards. In November 1867, Hayes, Doughboy, and gang member Randolph Spencer patronized a general store on the premises of Fort Mason in Central Texas. As Hayes stepped out into the chilly, frost-coated courtyard of the fort, he felt good about being alive. Truly, his was a life of complete freedom. Each day he went where he wanted, took what he wanted, and killed whomever he wanted. The only limits were how far his horse could carry him any given day. Life was an adventure if he didn't think too hard about his actions, and thinking was never a problem for him. Hayes broke from his musings when he saw a black man in uniform standing next to him, revolver drawn and pointed right at him. It was all Hayes could do to keep himself from trying to rip the soldier's eyes out of his skull then and there. But he didn't want to take a bullet to the chest. The man began to speak. He claimed to be a sergeant, an officer, and therefore, he had the authority to arrest wanted felons. He knew who the Taylor brothers were. He knew what they had been doing to black people across the state, and he wouldn't let them hurt another soul. As the scene unfolded, other soldiers from across the yard took notice, walking toward them. Doughboy and Spencer immediately drew their guns, holding them on the approaching soldiers. It was a standoff. But only for a second, as Hayes seized the moment and rapidly drew his firearm, striking the sergeant over his head with the butt of his gun. Just then, Major A. Thompson, the highest-ranking officer at the fort, 
emerged from the store with his gun drawn, ready to arrest the three outlaws. They didn't give him a chance, quickly turning their guns on him and opening fire. One bullet struck him in the jaw and sent him to his death. Just as quickly, the Taylor gang trained their guns back on the other soldiers. The desperados then mounted their horses and made a break for it. Though not before Hayes, with a smile, shot the black sergeant twice, killing him. Word soon reached DeWitt County, the Taylor family seat of power. Creed Taylor was surprised to hear that his sons had been so bold as to murder a major in the army. But he also saw an opportunity. He could twist Hayes' actions into something that actually made the family look like heroes. Across town in the sheriff's office, law enforcement had its fill. They wouldn't permit this latest offense to go unanswered, or at least one of them wouldn't. A deputy was assigned to the case. His name was Bill Sutton. Next up, we'll learn how a series of murders grew into the Sutton-Taylor feud. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Throughout the 1860s and into the 1870s, the Taylor Gang of Texas terrorized the state, killing any who got in the way of their cattle theft and doing worse to any Union soldiers or Black citizens they came across. These hate crimes went unchecked for years, largely due to the complicated political system of Texas at the time. After the Civil War ended in 1865, the state of Texas technically didn't exist. All Southern states were grouped into military districts governed by Union generals. They remained this way until the citizens of the territories elected state governments that drafted constitutions recognizing the personhood of their Black citizens, and this proved a slow process. Throughout the South, Confederate sympathizers were elected to office and attempted to draft state constitutions that continued to limit the freedoms of Black Americans. The white settlers of Texas bitterly felt the sting of having lost the war and would not manage to draft an acceptable document until 1901. Many lost relatives in the fighting. The soldiers that returned home were impoverished. The government that had promised to pay them no longer existed. On top of that, they now had to accept temporary governance from Union men, about 40% of whom were Black. Therefore, the former Confederates, or rebels, were painted by most Southerners as noble, true Americans, cut down by greedy Northerners and subhuman Africans. Despite the obvious moral flaws in this abhorrent point of view, it's a perspective that must be understood to comprehend the crimes committed by these outlaws. The psychology of defeat is not often talked about because a lot of history's biggest losers are not groups that modern people generally feel sorry for. 
Confederates, Nazis, ISIS, etc. Social worker Maxwell Gutman noted how failure on the individual level leads to feelings of fear. This breeds anxiety, which as we've already discussed, is a state of mind that seeks avenues of hatred through which to vent. The most famous example of this on a national scale was the downfall of the Weimar Republic after World War I, which Hitler used to inspire hatred of Jews and other minorities among the German populace and propel the nation into World War II. The Taylor family did something similar with the population of Texas after the defeat of the Confederacy. As the invading Northerners came to Texas and told people how to live, the Taylors roamed the countryside as paragons of freedom, refusing to cow to Union rule. They focused their killing on the Black population, taking advantage of the racist attitudes of their white neighbors. In this way, many white Texans actually looked up to the Taylors, and so were willing to forgive their crimes. They were outlaws, but roguish, likable outlaws who were keeping the Confederacy alive. Which was ironic, because none of the Taylors actually fought in the war. This spin was mostly Creed's doing. He took full advantage of the press, writing into newspapers with impassioned defenses of his family's actions. Any crimes were always just a misunderstanding. For instance, he claimed that the soldiers at Fort Mason were drunks who insulted his boys. Major Thompson was killed because he was trying to arrest innocent men rather than reprimand his soldiers. Soon, Creed didn't even have to berate his boys. Their murderous actions were celebrated throughout the state. Any law enforcement who didn't see things this way was too afraid to attempt an arrest, knowing that the gang would kill any lawmen who acted against the family. Any jury that was set to try a member of the gang always found the defendants not guilty. So successful was Creed's campaign of misinformation that his lies became part of the historical record. Books discussing the feud published as recently as 2009 painted the Taylors as victims of hearsay and rumor. Major Thompson's murder is declared an act of self-defense, and the newspaper reports of the Taylors' crimes have been labeled union propaganda. In a 2002 History Channel documentary, Taylor descendant Benna Taylor Kirksey said, I don't think there's any way to understand why the Taylors apparently were singled out. But even if half of the murders were made up, there are still scores of killings that are easily proven. For instance, Hayes' killing of the two Black Union soldiers in the bar was well-documented by eyewitnesses and multiple news sources. It becomes an Occam's razor dilemma, meaning the simplest explanation is likely the correct one. Either the Taylors were the victims of a massive Union conspiracy to paint them as villains for reasons unknown, or they were a group of very successful cattle thieves who saw the new Union government as a threat and so positioned themselves as local heroes to gain support. The latter explanation is, of course, much more likely. This sanitation of history ignored the systematic oppression, rape, and murder of Black Americans. Immediately after the war and for decades after, 
white Americans chose to focus on the pain of the defeated Southerners rather than on the much greater pain of the emancipated slaves. This is a psychology that leads to the glorification of figures such as Billy the Kid, Jesse James, and Bonnie and Clyde, who were, in reality, merciless killers. With all of this in mind, the Sutton-Taylor feud was really less of a feud and much more of a direct extension of the ideological conflicts of the Civil War. This is a point of view championed by historian James M. Smallwood, and it's a view that would likely have been appreciated by the one lawman who saw the Taylors for what they were, Bill Sutton. By modern standards, Sutton would likely still be seen as a racist. He fought for the Confederacy during the war, though supposedly managed to never actually participate in a battle. As a soldier, he most likely worked to build forts and guard them. As a deputy sheriff, he at least now saw the struggles of the black settlers and viewed them as human. When the head sheriff commissioned him to pursue the Taylor gang, there was some trepidation on Sutton's part. He was agreeing to take on one of the biggest, maybe the biggest criminal organization in the country at the time. And Sutton had much to lose. He had recently married his childhood sweetheart, Laura McDonald. If nothing else, Sutton at least looked the part of a crusading hero. At 22 years of age, he stood at six feet, with bright blue eyes and light curly hair. As one historian of the era put it, his manners were mild and gentlemanly, and his appearance altogether possessing. Had his lot been cast in more peaceful times, his life and destiny would have been far different. He seemed to accept his destiny with full enthusiasm, however, as he immediately proved himself an adversary to the Taylors in the spring of 1868, a few months after the death of Major Thompson. His first target was Charlie Taylor, yet another nephew of Creed's. A local widow came to Sutton and claimed Charlie stole her cattle, and thus her livelihood. Charlie was also wanted for his connection to the murder of a unit of army soldiers. According to Smallwood, Charlie and his men had shot and killed at least half a dozen Union soldiers. They took two prisoners, who they then beat to death. Apparently, this was done simply because it was more enjoyable than shooting them. They cut open the bodies of their multiple murder victims, filled them with rocks, and tried to sink them to the bottom of a river. Clearly, this didn't work, and the bodies were found shortly after, with several eyewitnesses claiming Charlie was seen in the area at the time of the murders. Sutton formed a posse and tracked Charlie Taylor to Bastrop, Texas, a city near Austin. Not surprisingly, the historical accounts differ widely as to what happened next. Sutton had seen these men turn his state into a war zone. They hurt women. They hurt children. It was time they bled a little. Sutton rode into Bastrop with his posse, searching high and low for the Taylor gang members. Eventually, one of Sutton's men spotted Charlie Taylor seated on the porch of a general store. According to some, Charlie went peacefully and was taken prisoner. But according to others, he immediately put up a fight. As Sutton rode up on his horse, he dismounted, 
his men all jumping down behind him. Charlie's casual demeanor made Sutton feel ill at ease. One wrong move, one slip, and he would never get back to see Laura. His grand campaign against the Taylors would be over before it started. As soon as he called out to Charlie, the man acted like he didn't notice the dozen or so lawmen standing in the street before him. He jabbered on with his companion, a man named James Sharp. The lawmen shifted anxiously in their boots, suspecting some trick. Sutton tried calling out again. This time, Charlie turned to him. He spoke down to Sutton, treating him as a child. This certainly caused Sutton's passions to flare. How dare this outlaw call him a war veteran and a husband less than a man? It was then that he saw a slight movement at Charlie's waist. Was that his hand? He didn't plan to find out. Sutton and his fellow outlaws drew their weapons, peppering Charlie and Sharp with bullets and buckshot. It was a calamitous, stunning display of firepower, leaving Sutton unclear of what had even happened. This had been his first gun battle. It was so quick, so confusing. He didn't know who had shot who. Once he realized that he had made it through unscathed, he crept forward, waving smoke out of his face. Squinting into the darkness of the porch, he saw a gruesome sight laid out before him. Charlie's face was half blown off, his clothing soaked with red. Next to him, Sharp gasped for air. Both held their pistols limply in their hands. Hopping forward, Sutton wrested Sharp's pistol away from him. He instructed his men to take Sharp prisoner and to put Charlie's body on the back of a horse. As they obeyed, Sutton took in what had just happened. He had won. He had killed his first member of the Taylor gang. But then a shriek came from next door. To Sutton's horror, he watched as a woman ran from the general store, a still child cradled in her arms. They had hit the child with one of their stray bullets. Sutton and his men stood trial for the shootout after Creed Taylor got the public to believe that Charlie and Sharp were executed after being taken prisoner. Until the end, Sutton and his men swore that Charlie had drawn on them and Sharp had been shot after he attempted to escape while in transit to a doctor. They were within their rights to kill both of them. As for the child, they were eternally sorry. But if Charlie had come quietly, none of this would have happened. Miraculously, the jury agreed. Sutton and his men were acquitted on all counts. Furious, the Taylors swore revenge. Their family motto? Who sheds a Taylor's blood by a Taylor's hand must fall. Next up, we'll meet the four lawmen who join Sutton and follow him as he encounters one of the worst tailors of all. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1868, 
the temporary military government of the state of Texas authorized an elite band of lawmen to track down and bring to justice members of the Taylor Gang, a massive group of outlaws led by cattle rustler Creed Taylor and his sons, Hayes and Doughboy. They became known as the Regulators. There were many members of the Regulator Posse, though five names in particular stand out. First was 22-year-old Bill Sutton, the young deputy sheriff who had already killed a member of the Taylor gang. He fought for the people of DeWitt County, such as the widow Thomas, who had her livestock and thus livelihood stolen by the Taylors. He also fought for his wife, Laura, who he hoped to start a family with once this was all over. Next, there was 25-year-old Charles S. Bell, formerly of the Union Army. He was as handsome as Bill Sutton, though he sported a long beard. Unlike Sutton, his military service had been exciting. Working as a spy, he infiltrated Confederate armies and sabotaged their camps. He was only captured once, and he escaped easily. Bell actually reached out to General Reynolds and requested that he be assigned to the regulators. He had been living in Texas since 1865 and wanted to make the tailors pay. He was also very career-minded. If he could prove a strong detective and soldier here, then he might be able to spin that into a career in D.C. After Bell was Jim Cox. He owned a ranch right in the middle of Taylor territory and thus always had to be on guard with his cattle. From the very early days of the Taylor gang, he had worked with lawmen to try and stop the outlaws, but only now would he have the numbers to do so. One of the most respected members of the regulators was 57-year-old former Texas Ranger, Joe Tumlinson, he had a long history of fighting both outlaws and Apache raiders. Even more interesting, he was married to Creed Taylor's sister, and Tumlinson's sister Elizabeth was married to another member of the Taylor family. Therefore, Tumlinson had the most to lose. They were hunting members of his extended family. A few questioned why he would turn on his relatives. Some say he was a devout servant of the law, Others say he simply saw the writing on the wall and sided with the winning team. Time would tell. Finally, the most infamous member of the regulators was 28-year-old Jack Helm. Those who take the Taylor side in the feud point to him, first and foremost, as being especially brutal and antagonistic toward the gang. He certainly looked the part of a stern killer with a heavy build dark hair, and black eyes. In truth, he had more in common politically with the Taylor gang than the regulators. Only a few years earlier in 1862, when the war was still on, he had lynched multiple Texas natives suspected of Union sympathies. It seemed he most definitely was simply backing the winning side, and it was that detachment that made him the most vicious. His outbursts of violence in the field would fuel the fires of the feud. While this may seem like a diverse set of motivations, the psychology of the situation might suggest otherwise. 
social justice researchers at Adelaide University in Australia have found that revenge is a human reaction to being slighted, motivated by the need for power, authority, and status. Sutton felt slighted when his authority as deputy sheriff was challenged. Bell felt slighted that his war service landed him in Backwater, Texas, while he longed for the status of D.C., Cox felt slighted by his authority over his ranch being challenged. Tumlinson, by an extended family that lowered his status through their criminal actions, and Helm, by a Confederate government that failed to achieve victory and provide justification for his past violent actions. They were collectively taking it out on the Taylor gang, but each man desired revenge for different reasons. Bell and Helm, being younger than Tumlinson and Cox, but more experienced than Sutton, were put in charge of roughly 50 men each. This included approximately 40% black soldiers and lawmen. Unfortunately, pervasive societal prejudice meant the black members of the posse were rarely written about. That same summer of 1868, the two companies headed out across the plains, Bell took his men to pursue a lead in a neighboring county on a ranch owned by the Hill family, while Helm took his men directly to Creed Taylor's ranch. It's unclear if the other head regulators rode with them or pursued different courses of action. Upon arriving on Creed's land, Helm found a group of wanted Taylor gang men camping there, including Randolph Spencer, who had been present for the murder of Major Thompson. The large group of lawmen was surprised at the ferocity of the desperados. They were used to criminals giving up when faced with superior numbers. Instead, they fired back with abandon. As a result, the Taylor gang members were able to pin the lawmen down and escape on their horses. Spencer was wounded but escaped. Creed Taylor, for his part, was likely smiling from his ranch house. The lawman still couldn't connect anything directly back to him. Helm's emotions flared. Meanwhile, Bell and his men arrived at the Hill family ranch. Rumor had it, they had been taken hostage by a different branch of the Taylor gang. Once again, historical records diverge wildly as to what took place here. Most agree that Bell, Cox, and a few other regulators arrived at the Hill Ranch to find a terrified family. They claimed that the Taylors forced them to permit the gang to use their land to gather their cattle. When the Taylors visited, they fired their guns at the house and trampled the garden to scare the family. Bell realized that this was the perfect place to trap the gang members. The men waited inside the house, and after a time, some combination of Hayes Taylor, his equally vicious relative, Martin Taylor, and an associate named Morris arrived at the ranch. Bell and his men immediately emerged from the house, pulling their guns on the outlaws. In this instance, the outlaws gave up, allowing themselves to be taken into custody. However, as the regulator set out with the prisoners in tow, they met with a nasty surprise. There were dozens of armed men blocking their way. Luckily for the lawmen, 
these men weren't here to rescue the tailors. They wanted revenge of their own. These were settlers who weren't swayed by Creed's lies. They knew what the Taylor family was really about. Bell attempted to hold them off, but was struck over the head and fell unconscious. When he came to, he found that in the commotion, the lawless mob had let the Taylors slip through their fingers. Some say that Martin Taylor and Morris were found dead shortly thereafter. Others say Martin died a year later at the hands of Joe Tumlinson. Hayes, however, most certainly lived on. Throughout the rest of the year, Helm, the most violent regulator, was especially adamant in his pursuit of the gang. Though he failed to kill the likes of Hayes or Doughboy Taylor, Buck Taylor or Henry Kelly, he arrested many of their associates, many of whom were killed while trying to escape. According to Helm, this was a legitimate circumstance that arose as a result of the Taylor gang's intractable nature. But according to the gang members and their allies, Helm was actually conducting executions. They claimed he took the men prisoner, tied them up, put them on their knees, and then walked up and shot them in the back of the head. Whether this is true is difficult to know for certain, though there are some who believe that if it was true, the executions were warranted. Trials frequently ended in the Taylor gang going free. If the criminals weren't playing fair, why should the regulators? This was still a struggling military territory, not an incorporated state within the Union. But as mentioned, these heat-of-the-moment killings generated further animosity. By the winter of 1868, word came down that the Taylor gang had put bounties of their own on the heads of the regulators. Regardless of the truth, the Taylors were losing ground, which likely actually increased the volatility of the feud. Retired Deputy Police Chief Jim Reynolds of the Melbourne Police Department wrote that in today's world, blood feuds often occur in isolated areas among ethnic groups who feel cut off from the rest of society. In that isolation, revenge is all-consuming. This very specific psychological profile gives rise to feuds. In the 1860s, this description fit the Taylor clan precisely. They were on a remote frontier, being driven off their land by a society that didn't want them. But the regulators weren't going to stop anytime soon. The Taylors had simply enraged too many over too long a period of time. If the Taylors felt cornered, the regulators felt bloodlust. Frustrated by the lack of progress, Sutton made a bold play on Christmas Eve, 1868. Buck Taylor walked through the streets of Clinton, Texas. It was a cold evening, and he wanted a drink to warm his insides. He passed several shops decorated for the Christmas holiday, saw children run by with candles headed for the church. Hmm, it was Christmas Eve. Who knew? He'd spent so much time on the range, he didn't even know what day of the week it was. And it had been a busy year. His family rounded up thousands of stolen beeves, herding them north to Kansas 
and making a massive profit. On top of that, they'd killed dozens of Union soldiers and freemen. Buck had killed seven in one go when he and some friends showed up at a cotillion and shot the place all to hell. Just as he was about to reach the saloon, a familiar face ran up to greet him. It was his friend, Dick Chisholm. Dick warned him that Sutton and his lawmen were in town. Dick wanted Buck to come home with him to spend Christmas Eve with Mother Chisholm. Buck just smirked. It didn't sound like his idea of a good time. As soon as Buck entered the saloon, he saw that Dick was right. Sutton was sitting at the counter, his pretty face and dainty hands infuriating Buck. He was also nursing a whiskey. Real men gulped it down. Buck approached the man who had killed his relatives and friends, his face red, his blood racing. He would not permit the lawmen to leave here alive. He wanted to take a literal bite out of Sutton right then and there, but instead, he spit out some words. If the sun goes down on you in DeWitt County, we'll kill you. Instead of looking afraid or jumping up or even getting angry, Sutton turned to him, cool as ice, and said, Why wait till sundown? Enraged at a challenge from this killer, Buck reached for his gun. The resulting battle ignited the feud and forever changed the destinies of all involved. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. Join us next week to discover who wins the showdown between Buck Taylor and Bill Sutton and how the feud became the bloodiest in Texas history. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler as a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion is written by Greg Castro. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>